you know, there would have been four or five rhinos poached a year and it suddenly went into the hundreds. The market price was anything between, you know, 20,000 euros a kilo to 60,000 euros a kilo. I mean, in the case in Rennes uh, this month, one of them was a 14.5 kilo rhino horn. All in all, the gang were thought to have handled something like 15 million euro worth of rhino horns. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A French court has just convicted a gang of eight men, including four members of the Rathkeel Rovers organised crime group, for trafficking rhino horn and ivory between Europe and Asia. But while sentences have been handed down, the Irish traders remain at large and are likely living under aliases as environmentalists urge Gardaí to track them down. So what are criminals doing with rhino horns and elephant tusks? And how did the Rathkeel Rovers see a multi-million euro opportunity in an underground criminal enterprise? Today, I'm talking to journalist and author Eamon Dillon, who is an expert on the globe-trotting criminal gang. He tells me about museum heists, ancient medicinal cures and the business-savvy traders who are always ahead of the game. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So Eamon, possibly this may be the final chapter in this ongoing story about the dead zoo gang, which is intriguing in so many ways. But a court case in France um, this month has uh, found guilty and sentenced three Irishmen to uh, sentences relating to the theft of these rhino horns. So firstly, where are they? Because they weren't in court. And secondly, is this the end? Is this the, is it finally shut down this massive big trade in rhino horns? Well, the last time we spoke about the rhino horn smuggling and the dead zoo gang, I pretty much uh, was definitive. And I was telling you and the listeners how uh, when Michael Flatley's home in Castle Hyde in North Cork was broken into, that was the last we heard of any kind of active dead zoo gang activities where they were stealing rhino horns for sale. But um, as for not the first time in my life, um, I was actually wrong. And so it turns out, <laughs> it turns out much, much more recently, um, uh, you know, in, in 2015 and 2016, that this group were, were active in France. Um, uh, and there was, there was a case taken, uh, there was some very interesting details came out in that court hearing. It was a three-day court hearing in Rennes. Now, none of the Irish guys were there, but there, were, there was four Irishmen that were charged um, out of nine, and the rest were were Franco, Chinese, and, and and Vietnamese. And for me, that was the interesting part, was it gave a real insight into the people who are actually being able to carry out the trade, the people who are the link from the dead zoo gang, stealing or acquiring rhino horns, you know, wherever they could, and the Vietnamese and Chinese illicit market in, in, in these traditional medicines. So there, there was... There was, there was quite an insight there, you know. Well, let's go back first of all and just remind us who are the Dead Zoo Gang and when did you first come across them? The Dead Zoo Gang, we started writing about them in 2010. Um, we got a couple of calls. People are saying, oh, the boys are dealing in rhino horns. And it just, it, I didn't understand it, to be honest. And it was only then, it was a 
it was literally a month or two later, we got a tip off about an Interpol uh, and a Europol warning being sent out to, to museums, including the Natural History Museum, known as the Dead Zoo Gang in Dublin, uh, where they were told, take your rhino horns off display or be very careful because there seems to be an active organised criminal gang that have been responsible for dozens of thefts right across Europe. Uh, and at that point, it was still like, you know, in the wider media, it was completely under the radar. And you had those, those two brothers then around that time were caught flying in from Portugal with um, five rhino horns at the, you know, worth supposedly 500,000 euro. And they were, they were sentenced then a, a little time after that in Ennis District Court and got a 500 euro pound fine each or a 500 euro fine each. Uh, you know, and that, that was the first inkling. And, and I think it, it took a while, like, to start Googling, um, you know, checking up local media in places like the Czech Republic and in Austria, and France, Italy. And then all of a sudden you realised there was a pattern and that there was a considerable number. There was something like two, uh, two or three hundred. I mean, the peak of it was around 2011 when there was just dozens of these of these burglaries. Uh, there would literally be one in Portugal on the same day as there would be one in you know, somewhere in Germany. So, I mean, there, there was various, I suppose, tentacles of the gang were, were, were active. Uh, and it, it was just, it kind of, I think the Americans were the first really in terms of law enforcement. In 2010, they did a sting operation uh, and, and they got, they got um, some of these guys, they were, you know, members of the Rathgill Rovers community. And two of them did time in Denver, Colorado, and then there was other cases that they were chasing, one in Texas where three, three of the Irish guys were involved in using um, what they called a straw man. It was basically a down and out because non-residents couldn't buy these uh, artifacts from protected species. So they were, they were getting guys they basically met on the street to go in and spend $15,000 on their behalf. So, I mean, the, so the the Irish, or sorry, the US, um, I think it's the, the US uh, Wildlife agency that were behind us were, were pretty pushy and they, they started i think they, they kind of got more people motivated to some extent um and certainly the french then uh, there was an organization uh, there an, an ngo non-government organization that were campaigning to protect uh, endangered species called robin dubois or robin debois and they were they were very much behind pushing this recent case in rennes as well in france and they brought a civil case against the parties. So they're like an, an they're an environmentalist group. Um, presumably, they aren't fighting uh, for these rhino horns that are in museums because they're already come from animals that are dead. But is there a trade in these rhino horns? Are hunters killing these fantastic animals and and? in the same way as elephant tusks are, are of value. And absolutely. And I mean, the, 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 the kind of the, the activities of the Dead Zoo Gang actually paralleled what was going on in the likes of, I think, you know, Botswana or some of these, some of these countries in kind of southern Central Africa, where, you know, there would have been four or five rhinos poached a year and it suddenly went into the hundreds. So, you know, the, the market price was anything between you know, 20,000 euros a kilo to 60,000 euros a kilo. I mean, in the case in Rennes uh, this month, one of them was a 14.5 kilo rhino horn. It was a, like an exceptional specimen as it was regarded in court. And 
all in all, the gang were thought to have handled something like 15 million euro worth of um, rhino horns. And notably as well, they were also handling ivory tusks, which is exactly the, 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 the elephant material that was again being shipped out to, to Southeast Asia. So, I mean, it, it kind of, this particular um, case, I think, gave us a, a little insight into the scale of it and shows why, even when, you know, the, the Dead Zoo Gang and their various operatives were being actively sought by various, you know, law enforcement agencies around the world, that they continued at it. I mean, if there's 15 million to be made in this kind of trade, you know, why wouldn't they do it in that regard? And why are they so valuable? Like, I mean, who wants rhino horns and, you know, what do they want to do with them? Well, uh, that's, like, I suppose in the West, that's, you know, the, the, that's the question. You wonder why. I mean, basically, it's the same material that's in your hair or in your fingernails. But in, 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 some, um, in some Asian communities, some Asian countries, there is this idea that, you know, it's a cure for so many ills. It's everything from... You know, it's everything like, you know, a, a homeopathic version of Viagra to curing cancer. But it's also it's also a way of showing off how wealthy you are, that you have, a, you know, a part of a rhino horn sitting up on your, your dining room table and you, you shave off a few crumbs and sprinkle it into your guest champagne just to show how crazily wealthy you are and, you know, and you're ready to, to spread it around. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's where the demand was coming from. I mean, it's about, about showing off, about showing off how wealthy you are. But, of course, it's having this huge impact on these animals. It's a valuable commodity, not unlike gold or something like that. I mean, it's... it's um, and the elephant tusks, are they still, like... Is that ivory still used in jewellery and jewellery boxes and stuff, or has that been actually outlawed yet? Yeah, well, under the sites, the CIT, uh, ES... Um, legislation, kind of international agreements. Yeah, you can't actually trade it. I think there's there's exceptions for antiques, so, you know, stuff that was you know possibly carved in the 13th century or whatever. You know, and there's what they call libation cups and there's there's, there's dagger handles and things. Uh, but the, the, but they're strictly controlled, and you have to have a license for it. And it's you know not anybody can do it. You have to show that you're you're working with a curator of your museum, or you have to have a genuine cultural reason for being able to trade in these things because. Otherwise, they're going to end up on on someone's table in Southeast Asia. So, I mean, that, that's where it's coming from. It's mm. so our boys um, from the Dead Zoo Gang who are linked closely with the Rathkeel Rovers, who are have a, a kind of a, a long history of trading in antiques. Presumably, it was through that kind of arena that they discovered the value of the rhino horns and possibly made the connections they needed to sell uh, either the stolen goods or those bought on the black market from hunters into the Asian market? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, they were like 20 years ago or, or, or longer, like the, the traders from Rathkeel were, were knocking around China, buying up, you know, look, looking for, you know, to source, say, wrought iron furniture or marble fireplaces or whatever it is they could sell back in the in, in the markets in Europe, whether it was, you know, to find a decent factory that can do good copies of designer furniture or whatever it was. So, yeah, of course, they would have then, while they were there, discovered to some, you know, that there's, there's a particular market for, for um, rhino horns. I mean, that's what they do. They find a niche. They find something that no one else has, you know, whether it's, you know, 1972 Range Rovers, which seem to be prized assets at the moment. And they were in ahead of everybody on that one. And, you know, basically cornered the market before anyone else realized that, you know, there's a demand for these, which I think was something to do with uh, congestion charges in central London and, you know, and, and having a, 
you get out of it if you have a classic car for some reason. So people with the money who worked in the, the, the city of London were looking for these classic Range Rovers so they could avoid the congestion charges. So, And of course, some of our guys from Rakhil were, were first in when they tweaked this and were, you know, basically sewed up the market before anyone else got in there. And it's the same with the rhino horns. I mean, like they weren't going to go out and, and start running around the bush in Africa with guns, you know, possibly getting shot at by someone else. They weren't going to deal with you know, people who might turn around and, and shoot you back. So, like, the next thing to do is, look, here's one in a, in a in an auction house. Let's buy it and sell it. And and that's they just do what they always did. Like, you know, they buy, buy low, sell high. It sounds to me if they were a legitimate corporate enterprise, you'd do well to buy shares into the Rathkeel Rovers. Um, they sound like they're ahead of the game and lots of commodities that are on the international stage as opposed to... They're not... They're very... Um, you know, well-educated in international affairs, more so than a lot of criminals we come across here in Ireland who, who tend to stay within their communities and and not expand their horizons, even, you know, as far as Europe. Well, to, to use, I don't know if you remember the corporate speak that we got a couple of years ago about uh, setting up a culturally blind business model, but this is what they do. So, like, you know, they, they were able to, to work, whether it's selling tarmac in, in Sweden or you know, dealing in rhino horns in Australia. Like, when you say about other criminals don't leave the community, in a way, they don't They don't either. They go together. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether they're in Ireland or in Poland. As far as they're concerned, everyone else is an outsider. And they're, they're, they're a particularly tight group. And to some extent, it's not, that, it's, it's not that sophisticated. They'll arrive somewhere and they will tell, sorry, you don't have the paperwork. They'll keep asking questions or find somebody local to, to get the paperwork for them or to find a workaround. So, you, you because they're not involved in, you know, at this stage, at that stage rather, you know, they're not involved in, in really serious crime. They were able to stay under the radar and they never, they never mm. like kind of, they never got a lot of attention and until, of course, they just got greedy, I guess, with the rhino horns or there was too many trying to copy the successful business model and realised, all, again, all the, all the ones that you could get. I suppose, legitimately through auction houses had already been bought up. So some of the guys then opted to, to you know, to start stealing them. And do this Dead Zoo gang and the larger Rathkeel Rovers grouping, uh, obviously there's lots of individuals within that group or gang, organised crime group really, and, you know, they have been referred to in Europol reports as such, but... Are they, do they have a tendency to learn other languages? Do they have, are they multilingual or do they just trade on their business savvy? Uh, well, look, I mean, again, I remember we spoke about this before, but like there, there's there's young fellas out there, you know, Rakia Rovers, and they're able to knock on a door and basically swindle you out of, you know, a couple of grand by selling you tarmac. And they can do it, in, again, they can do it in Italian, they can do it in Swedish you know, they can, whatever language you know, like is the language of the area, they'll pick up enough mm-hmm. to let you know, uh, you know, to, to, to get what they want. I mean, like years ago when myself and I think photographer Liam O'Connor, we traveled over to Bergamo in Italy and this, uh, it was like the outskirts on, on the foothills of the Italian Alps. And we were talking to these people who, who had been, you know, they'd been conned. And like we had an interpreter with us, they had no English. And yet, you know, a racketer was able to find... A, this was like, you know, it was the equivalent of being up in the, the hills of the Dublin mountains somewhere. Like, you know, you, you don't find these places easily. Yeah. And uh, and lo and behold, like, they've been hit up and hit by a tarmac gang, so... 
You know, that, that shows you the kind of the skill level, which makes you wonder that if they actually applied it to doing something legitimate, like, you know, and but it's important to say this as well, that some of them do. Mm-hmm. And I have, I have, I have definitely, I've spoken to a, a couple of um, traders from Raquel, you know, who are involved in um, things like garden furniture and they would travel around to different festivals or, you know, like we have Bloom in Ireland, which is relatively new in Ireland, but that sort of thing's been going on in Belgium from France for 30, 40 years. Um, and they were, you know, and they're, they'll figure out, okay, we can get these new, these, this particular suite of garden furniture from Spain. They're making them cheap and it's going to be the big thing next year in Southern Germany. And again, they're often right. And these guys are making it, you know, are making a successful living out of doing that. So in that way, their business model can, can be applied legitimately, mm-hmm. but some of them choose not to. They'd put the rest of us to shame. But um, so it, the American investigation saw a number of leading figures um from the Dead Zoo Gang, jailed around 2015, 2016. And that was to do with a theft valued at 57 million from museums. Um, Moving on to this French case, which was only heard in in recent weeks, this this, uh, relates to a random traffic inspection in France. Maybe tell us a little bit about that and how this one was discovered. Yeah, yeah, this this one came out now. It was it was police in Poitiers in September 2015. Apparently, it was a random motorway stop for four guys in a BMW who turned out to be these Rathkeel chaps, uh, and they had elephant tusks and 32 grand in cash in the car. So they were they were obviously going to be dealt with at that point. Um, but the, the the customs people then decided they went through their phones and they basically started, this came out in court that they actually basically listened into the phones and they were able to track down the um, Chinese restaurant owner who was the guy that they were selling to. There was, um, a, there was a, a guy called uh, David Jia uh, and he had they, he had a, a, a warehouse in the north of Paris and then the following year in May 2016, they went to that and they found uh, another 40 uh, raw ivory tusks. And they also had carved tusks and there was no doc- documentation as to the legal legal um, origin. And around, uh, and around the same time, a couple of months later, sorry, uh, the, the, the two of the Irish guys were caught in a B&B, with, again, with this exceptionally large um, rhino horn that was nearly 15 kilos. And it, it basically it came out because they, they had they had gone into this whole surveillance of this group um, the people from uh, Robin Dubois were telling me that they they know that this guy from the phone messages that they traded something like sixty three rhino horns in in, a, in that period. So like in in a year and a half or whatever it is, sixty three rhino horns went went through this this networks through their hands. So it, that kind of gives you the scale. But but even um, you know, one guy claimed he he was one of, one of the Vietnamese guys uh, claimed that he was he was a collector. Um, uh, but that was kind of that was shown up because one of the more junior guys, they found that he actually had a little workshop where he was turning ivory and rhino horn into powder and flakes. And before that was being exported then to Vietnam and China for use as traditional medicine. So they, they kind of, they pretty much threw the book at them, like, you know, by any any of the mm-hmm. sentences you've seen, even in the States. So, I mean, uh, like the, the guy who was given, the, he, he was named in court as Tom, as Tom Green, um, 33-year-old, they described him as uh, Raquel Rover, and that his brother, Richard O'Reilly, 35-year-old, they were the two that got jail sentences, one of them for three and a half years, and the other, um, I think, just uh, two years and nine months, something like that. 
Uh, they also got fines of up to two, like a green got a fine of up to 200,000, according to the reports in, in, in the French media. And others got lesser ones. The other, the other two um, uh, Irish guys got suspended sentences. So there was no ar- arrest warrants for them. But the, the two Irish guys, like we know from Sunday World sources that that's more than likely. Um, it's not more than likely. They are they are um, aliases that they they have other real names, and that was borne out before. There was a John Flynn arrested in Paris a couple of years ago, uh, and he he went back to Ireland, and he was extradited from there as John Slattery from here rather as John Slattery to serve time in the US, um, and that was back in in 2020. He was flown by private jet back to Texas to serve his time. So, like, he had actually changed his name by deed pull. That came out in the extradition hearing. So that seems to be a tactic, obviously, some of these guys are used. And now you, you change your name by deed pull. Presumably then you can get new, tra- new travel documents. So there's an arrest warrant out for you, you know, in, in Poland or Italy, as, as Eamon Dillon, you know, I go in, get my deed pull and change it to Nicola Talent. And away I go. I'm a completely different person. I, I, mm. I doubt it works as easily as that in these days of biometrics and fingerprinting and so on. But I've, I've no doubt that, you know, no more than we saw them with the with the with the fake um, COVID certs early last year, which which launched them back into the world headlines again. That they're good at having plenty of different IDs, as you know, so they can move around and, and avoid all all the various warrants that are, are waiting for them. It sounds to me like Daniel Kinnahan and Jerry Hutch would could learn a thing or two from them uh, with that kind of trickery going on in the background. This. Charity, this this environmentalist grouping, Robin Desbois, has called on Irish Gardaí basically to go and hunt them down and to send them back to France to serve the sentences those who have actually received jail terms. Yeah, I, I was speaking to their president, uh, Charlotte Nihar, um, last week about this, and and she she, it was, she actually flagged up the case of John Flynn, aka John Slattery, to say. You know, I hope that the Irish authorities, you know, go after them the way that the Irish authorities, you know, you know, went to, you know, executed the extradition warrants on behalf of the US uh, at that time. So, I mean, they're keen to to see the kind of the punishments followed through. Now, our information is that they're they're most likely somewhere in the UK at the moment, but that remains to be seen. You know. And do you know these guys? Have you come across them before? Not, no, but I, but. The, as far as I understand it, the information that we have um, is that they will be first cousins of some of the guys that have served time. Like you have Richard Sheridan, who was part of, you referred to earlier, the 57 million worth of artifacts stolen, or, well, there was a plot to steal 57 million worth of artifacts from British museums. Um, so that uh, Richard Sheridan, he, he would have served time for that. And when he was finished, he was extradited back to the States to do time there. Uh, he, he's back out since last year as well. Um, and his first cousin, Richard Kerry O'Brien Jr., uh, again, you know, served time in the States for Rhinohorns, also in Operation Griffin as well in the UK. So our, our information is the two brothers who, who are going as Tom Green and Richard, Richard O'Reilly, I, again, are, are cousins. They're, they're close cousins um, of these guys. So you're, you're talking about pretty much the same extended family still operating. Mm. And perhaps they won't come to the surface until they're caught yet again with a, another rhino horn somewhere. Well, it just like the thing about Richard Kerry O'Bri- O'Brien Jr. was that we first came across him in 2002 when we did a story about um, cigarette smuggling, when the, the guys were trying to force uh, truck drivers to, to take on board tobacco um, from Zeebrugge over to, over to the UK ports. 
And that's where that's the first time, like you know. And then then here he is, like you know, turning up again and again. Um, that that fifteen kilo rhino horn. This might be a bit of a random one, and indeed the sixty two tusks that passed through the hands of this criminal network. Um, did the environmentalists know were they from hunted animals or were they already museum artifacts? Can they tell? Like, is there a way of testing to see how old or if if these you know, if these horns or these tusks were taken from a a live animal. Yeah, generally they can tell because a lot of the time uh, the antique ones would have been treated at different times. People polish them or use brasso or whatever it is they want to do with it. So, which again makes it dangerous to start chomping down on these things. But yeah, look, it it is pretty much, uh, it is pretty much easy, I think, to tell whether it's a a recent kill or whether it's an antique one. Because some of them, some of the ones being traded are hundreds of years. So, you know, they're, they're 150, 200 years old. So, Mm. You know they've, they, you know they've. I suppose they, they wouldn't be as fresh, so to speak. You know, so I mean, you you certainly can tell the difference. Yeah, and they think this one because this one is so big and exceptional. They're hopeful that they'll be able to trace, see exactly where it, where it originated from. That somebody somewhere has to be missing a fifteen kilo rhino horn. Well, absolutely fascinating, Eamon, and uh, no doubt we will be back to this again because sounds to me like these Rathkeel Rovers and the Dead Zoo Gang. They may have been caught a few times, but they they don't seem to have been gone away. So I think the final word will be, we'll we'll be revisiting it. (laughs) Yeah, I think the final word is watch this space. I'm not going to make that mistake again. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Eamon. You're welcome, Nick. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.